I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. What are we going to talk about today? Uh, I think we're going to talk about compression today. So, like squishing things. Yeah, squishing, squishing bits. Oh, taking, bits? Taking bits and squishing them. So, which, like, you know. If you squash a zero, like, flat, it becomes a mm-hmm. one. Yeah, right. That kind of thing. <laughs> I see. That's Unless you squish it. it down, in which case it becomes an underscore. Oh, or a minus. Well, if you got to squish it from both sides to make a uh, minus. That's this true. Is the, these just... are the compression algorithms that these we need to These are the compression algorithms that we're here to talk about today. <laughs> which one of those is Zlib? <laughs> Well, in the true spirit of these uh, these podcasts, we haven't really thought too much about what we're going to talk about. We did discuss that we should talk about compression. Mm-hmm. A number of months ago, I did a presentation at work about the various different compression algorithms, or rather the uh, the way that I was subverting them for a sort of side project I've got called, um, oh gosh, I can't even remember, Z-Index or Z-Index or Zindex which is mm-hmm. a way of archiving and searching through archives that you've previously um, have made, Z, uh, gzipped files, and um, sort of random accessing within them, which is something you're not supposed to be able to do, but with a little bit of sidebound data you can. But that meant trying to understand or explain to people how Zlib worked, which meant talking about compression. And then we were like, hey, we should, we should talk about that. So here we are. Yeah, what do you want to talk, talk about? about that. I mean, like, what, what, is, what even are a compression? uh so yeah aside from turning you know zeros into other various characters on your keyboard (laughs) which is not um, really what they do just to be clear (laughs) not not a real thing um yeah i mean you know quite often it it makes sense to trade uh a little bit of extra cpu time in order to get a little bit less storage space or basically just bytes because you're transferring something over a network or whatever it might be. Right. Lots of other contexts. Um, and so you want to take a bunch of data and shrink it down into something smaller. Uh, and there are many algorithms for this. And uh, we're going to talk about them today. But I think the first thing we should talk about are sort of the different trade-offs. Because it's it's like, well, why wouldn't I want to make my data smaller? And, right. and how do I want to make my data smaller? And other considerations that you might have when choosing one of these algorithms. I mean, so obviously the first thing that springs to mind is how good is the compression algorithm at squishing my data in the first place? Like given an input file, how much smaller can it be after it's been compressed? And that's really easy and objective to measure. You know, you take your 100K file and you apply your compressor to it and you'll go, Hey, it's 200 bytes now. That's awesome. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And this one mm-hmm. makes it 190 bytes. And you're like, that's obviously better. Let's right. just use the 190 byte one. Right. So that's the first thing is the compression ratio. Yeah. And people do t- tend to talk about it as a ratio, right? Or or sometimes a percentage, right? You'll get like, you know, 90% compression, which the way I interpret 90% compression is you took something that uh, it's sort of, it's a little... I feel like it's a little weird when you when you say that because it's like I took a hundred bytes and I compressed it down to ten bytes. Right. I saved ninety percent of I the saved original 90% size. Ninety percent of the original, right? Yeah. Which you know, it's like so I got ten percent was the result, <laughs> but it's like one minus that, right? 
Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you can have, uh, you know, ratios. I feel like you'll also see things where people talk about negative compression ratios in order to express something that actually got bigger when you compressed it, which can also happen. Oh, yeah. That's... But, but that sort of breaks that model too, right? So I think it's really important when you're talking about and I, this is true all the time when you're talking about percentages and ratios and things like that, where it's like it's kind of easy to lose track of what the numerator and the denominator were. Um, so I, I feel like when, it, when, when you're discussing these things, it never hurts to sort of be explicit. Right. So when we're talking about compression ratios, well, I don't know that we'll have any concrete things, but mm -hmm. then, yeah, in, in, that, in, in that specification, 90% would mean it is... 90% smaller means that, yeah, 90% of the original size went away and you're left with a file that is 10% of the mm -hmm. original. Right. Mm -hmm. That makes that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. obviously, naively, you want to pick the thing that compresses your input to be the smallest output. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. But there yeah. are other trade-offs, obviously. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, yes. we wouldn't be bringing them up. We'd be like, yeah, yes. well, we're done. You pick the smaller one. Right. So, what else? What else is important? Well, there's compression how long it takes to do the compression. Right. Uh, and there's also how long it takes to decompress it. Right, right. Uh, and for certain algorithms, there's how lossy it is, if it is lossy. Right, right. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose, yeah, the, the, the idea that we could talk about loss-e compression as well might be too much for one podcast. So maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll table that for another, uh, another time. But yeah, so I, I was thinking we would talk really about uh, loss-less compression in this, yeah, okay. in this chat because the world sure. is going to be... Maybe we'll get to it at the end. Who knows? You know, yeah. Again, exposing the listener to the lack of planning that goes into this. Yeah. In fact, it's a watchword I of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least asking the question is always a good one, right? Yeah. Like, is this actually loss-less compression? Because not every compression algorithm is. Can I assume that when I decompress it, I get the exact same bytes that I put into mm -hmm. the compressor? That seems mm -hmm. it's kind of the definition of lossless mm -hmm. uh versus image compression and stuff which actually loses some of the data and you don't get it quite yeah. back as we've all seen audio from video can all be a little lossy yeah 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 mm -hmm. so obviously compression time and decompression time uh another thing that i think is an interesting one to consider is how how much code it takes to decompress your input because as kind mm -hmm. of an implied input to your uh, decompression data is the thing that can decompress it. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. in in on a Unix system or whatever, you know, you've got gunzip, and it's like, okay, there's you know, five hundred uh, bytes of sorry, five hundred k of, of of executable somewhere. You don't have to worry about it because everybody has gunzip somewhere, and so you can mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, right, we can decompress this. But like, if you are working on an embedded system which has got limited resources, which is one of the main reasons you might want to do compression. Like, hey, we've got an SSD and we need to read things off of the SSD and decompress them into RAM to run them or to do whatever. Then you realize that you actually have to budget for the decompression algorithm and the amount of code space that it takes up. And if you have like a you know, a compression algorithm, which is like, hey, I have a lookup table and the lookup table is 200 megabytes of like values, canned values. <laughs> right, then, right. And you just store <laughs> in your compressed version. You're like, well, it's just number seven in that table. <laughs> That's yeah. great compression, but you need a very big decompression table somewhere else. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great consideration, actually. Hadn't and really I mean, that. it's top of mind just because of like, looking at uh, uh compression on like old 8-bit machines that 
that I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Look how, how much you can compress. But unfortunately, the decoder is like 5K and that's too big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I guess part and parcel to that is kind of like uh, fonts also have this property. Is like there's a certain percentage of these things are going to be available in any environment that you're delivering the data to. Because again, mm-hmm. a lot of times when you're compressing stuff, it's in order to send it somewhere. And the question is, can the person on the other side actually uh, uncompress it, right? And so depending on the exact transport mechanism and the clients involved and a bunch of other factors, you may or may not have access to those algorithms and thinking about which ones are going to be more ubiquitous and which ones are going to be like, oh, actually, we need to first send the decompression library and then we can send yeah. the uh, data The actual itself. data, right. Yeah, is, is uh, a, a sort of another dimension of that in a way. And, I mean, if we talk about ubiquitous, I mean, the most ubiquitous compression algorithm that I'm aware of would be Deflate, which is mm-hmm. the algorithm that powers zip files and GZ and every web um, transaction you've ever done. Um, mm-hmm. Although I guess C standard has now taken it over. But, yeah, all right. Most, <laughs> most web transactions are compressed with Deflate. And, you know, colloquially, everyone sort of refers to it as either Zlib, which is the library that implements it, or just gzip, even though it really is the same algorithm inside your your Windows zip files as well. Um, And that uses a number of techniques under the hood, and we can talk about what those techniques are. But, like, um, I guess let's talk about what types of things you can do in a compression algorithm. Okay, yeah. So one of the things that I used to do a million years ago on 8-bit machines was... Um, you would observe that very often you'd have sequences of bytes that repeat. So you've got some, usually like a picture, an image, or a sprite in this instance. You'd be like, well, okay, it's the, it's the value zero 80 times, followed by a one and a seven and another three zeros and then another mm-hmm. hundred zeros and then whatever. That doesn't make sense, but whatever. You know that. So even just eyeballing in a hex editor, you can see that most of it is zeros. Mm-hmm. And so one might just go a simple um, compression algorithm would be okay. If I see a zero, count how many more zeros there are, and then mm-hmm. when the the the, dec- the the compressed output is zero followed by how many zeros there were, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, that's great. If zero is the only thing you want to do compression for and this is like run length encoding as this is rle um, where we're saying hey i'm gonna look at how long the run of this particular single number is and mm-hmm. i'm just going to repeat it now that's cool it makes sense the decoder is easy you read bytes and every time and you just copy them but every time you see a zero you read the next byte and you write out that many zeros mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. straightforward Right, and it's pretty effective. And obviously, you can imagine that the decoder is trivial. The encoder is pretty trivial as well. But the first and obvious thing you might notice is, well, what if there's only one zero? Right. Now you're sending zero followed by a one. Right. So and that's twice as big <laughs> as, as it was when it came out, which is not a good look. And right. that goes to your original point about like having a negative compression ratio. And this is one of the mm. reasons that you can get negative compression ratios mm. is that sometimes you try to encode some clever things and they're not as clever for the particular stream of data that you've got. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yep. One way around this is to divide the world into little blocks and say, let's let's compress every... 512 bytes let's say and then you say immediately before every block i'm going to put a flag that says did i apply run length encoding 
or did mm, I not mm-hmm. apply run length encoding or some other compression, whatever algorithm? And then you can try to RLE compress 512 bytes. And if it gets bigger than 512 bytes, you go, ah, uh, let's just store it as is. And then you just put mm-hmm. the flag that says this is just exactly as um, it's just byte for byte, copy the next 512 bytes. And of course, you can generalize that. But, you know, in the worst case now, what we have is every 512 bytes, we add one byte that says this isn't compressed. And now we still mm-hmm. made it bigger, but hopefully not as bad as it would be if every byte was was there. And that's another reason. So the sort of metadata about the data that explains how the compressor is configured or what how to decompress the next bit can take up more space than if it was just uh, raw data. Mm-hmm. So that's run length encoding. That's one of the easier ones. What else could we do to compress data? Uh, well, that's a good question. I don't have an answer to that. Well, what is the most common letter in the English language? Uh, E. R E. <laughs> no, E. Yes, the E. Right. So, um, how many bytes does it take to, to store an E? Uh, well, normally it's, um, one byte. One right? byte. Right. Yeah. But we know that E is more common than most, if we're compressing, let's say, text. Mm-hmm. E is more common than almost every other letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it is the most common letter, sorry. Um, so what if we could say, let's forget about bytes. Let's just treat this as a stream of bits. Mm-hmm. What if I said I could encode a, an E with only two bits? Like maybe let's just say zero and then one is an E, mm-hmm. as in the binary zero, one. And then mm-hmm. every other letter, for the sake of E's over the air and not without a, <laughs> a whiteboard to draw anything on, everything else is going to be a one bit followed by eight bits of the rest of the the letter. Mm-hmm. So that means that every other letter is now nine bits, boo-hoo, mm-hmm. but every E is only two bits. Right, right. So this is a kind of like, you know, you think of it like the RLE in terms of we're trading off something to encode something which is hopefully more common or is more compressed, but, we're, but we've made it slightly more pessimistic in another case. But um, now, if you imagine like a third of all of your text is an E, you've dropped that third down to two bits and everything else is nine bits. Now, I can't do the math in my head. It's terrible to do, but but um, there is a way to construct a optimal tree of bits, ones and zeros, that give each character that you could possibly have inside your output a variable number of bits based on how common it is or not. So mm-hmm. while an E may be one zero, um, I can't even remember what I just said, zero, one, whatever. And now mm-hmm. uh, maybe the next most common letter is, I don't know, T. That might be one, zero, one. And that's unambiguously a prefix that only means it's T. And it's three mm-hmm. bits now. Mm-hmm. And then you can start building a tree with all of the other things. And until you get to like, you know, the Q and the Z take maybe even now 12 bits mm-hmm. to, in- to mm-hmm. unambiguously encode. Um, but now, you know, effectively we are storing the letters with codes that are Inversely, propor- inversely proportional in length to how common they are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now uh, we, uh, we, the, the, the document we're storing, provided it's an English document um, and fits this sort of statistical um, arrangement of probabilities of how likely each letter is, now we can store it in considerably less uh, bits. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it may make sense, you know, like, you know, like that's, there's, there's a reason why the, the, the phone number for emergency services is right. just 112 
or right. 999. Nine, or, nine, or what is it? What if, oh, yeah, that's what it is. You What's should the number? probably know what that is if you live in the United States. Just saying. <laughs> I would recommend that you write that down. Okay, I'm going to write that down. It's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was going to say that, that like phone numbers are have like this sort of like feeling of like they're unambiguous. You know, 911 mm-hmm. doesn't code. That's not the beginning of someone else's number. You never accidentally right. code it. But that means that anyone else starts with like a zero or a one or something right, like that, which is right, like right. a reason why... So you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, so one of the things that I've heard about uh, frequently when talking about different compression algorithms is using a dictionary uh, as a as a compression mechanism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've heard about that is that you do, and, and I don't know if this is universally true, but it's something to, at least that I've considered in the past, is you you either need to do this thing where you're saying like, okay, well, let's assume that we're going to be compressing English words. Like, okay, that's a big assumption, but sure, for certain applications, that makes sense. In that case, you can kind of define some of these things up front, including something like a dictionary, right? So you can make just a dictionary of words, right? And you can have each uh, byte sequence refer to whole words instead of individual letters. And that would be another way, potentially, uh, to do this. And, you know, there's like, you know, somewhere in the order of tens of thousands of words in the English language. So your dictionary wouldn't be all that big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you'd get good compression out of that. Alternatively, you could build the dictionary after you've run through the data and found the most frequently occurring patterns or words or sequences of bytes or whatever you might find. But the disadvantage of that is that now you sort of have to run through everything before you can build that dictionary or you need to find have an algorithm that will build it on the fly or something like that um and so that seems like a whole category of things where you're sort of trading off between either knowing what kind of data you're processing beforehand or doing some things post hoc after you've run through mm-hmm. the data that might make it a little bit more difficult to work with if you were for example trying to do compression um, as a, like a stream, like you, you, you don't ever want to have to seek through the data multiple times or use a whole bunch of memory while you're compressing it. And so you have these, these trade-offs that you need to make when you're, when you're doing that. Um, are there algorithms that you've, compression algorithms that you've worked with before that sort of make these trade-offs in different ways? Well, absolutely. So um, we're actually slowly walking towards what deflate is going to be, which is a cool, <laughs> cool thing, you know, and, and a totally unintentional, which is great. Uh, but um, so just on that one thing you mentioned about, like, um, if it was English words and the probabilities mm-hmm. and the thing, as I described, obviously, if you knew the compressor and the decompressor both knew it was English words and they'd previously agreed on the frequency of letters. Sorry, letters. I'm talking about the letters thing first. They've previously mm-hmm. agreed on the frequency of letters. Then they would both already know that E is zero one and and. Mm-hmm. P is whatever, 1001 or whatever like that. But if they don't know that, or if you want to dike, as you say, um, have a sort of dynamic idea about, well, I ran through the data and I counted how many of each letter there were, and now mm-hmm. I'm going to build my 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 tree of like w- how many bits code for which letter uniquely for every time, every piece of data, then you need to actually transmit that tree to the other end so that the other mm-hmm. end can say, okay, this is, we agree on the code book of like how many bits mean which letter. So that's a downside with um, uh, dynamically sending that information across because the the tree is not free. It takes mm-hmm. up some space, right? So already, mm-hmm. it, so you have to offset the compression you get from the tree with the fact that you have to to send the tree at all. One of the cooler tricks is like exactly as you said is what if you instead of treated each byte individually, 
You also said, well, dictionary elements themselves are just other symbols. So now we're just, instead of compressing character at a time, byte at a time, we'll just call them symbols. And let's say the mm -hmm. first 255 symbols are the literal value 0 to 255 of the byte 0 to 255. Mm -hmm. okay. And then let's say symbol 256 is the first of my dictionary. Mm -hmm. right. And it just means the letter, I don't know, the word cat, right? And the 257 means dog and whatever, right? And you, again, if you could previously agree this on both sides, um, the tree building step that we talked about where depending on the relative probability or a, a number of occurrences of each of the symbols that you see doesn't care how many bits long those symbols are right you can have a billion symbols in that tree if you wanted and it will still be the case that the most commonly occurring ones will have the shortest bit encoding and the mm. least frequently mm. occurring ones will have the longest one and obviously as you put more and more things in in the limiting case that can be a very very long uh, prefix so to the point where you're like well this is longer than the word that it's coding for in the dictionary let's not bother with this anymore we might as well just encode it using smaller uh, words so a way of naturally extending the table of um of characters and their prefixes is just to throw in words as well or pre previously agreed dictionary components so that you know hey this is this this pattern appears in my data more often than not so um when you see 1011, that actually means the entire string cats are cool, right? Because that happens mm -hmm. in my, my application a lot, right? right? That's the kind of thing you could do. And um, But there's another sort of aspect, which is um, now I have to either transmit that dictionary, boom, right. yes. or we have to previously agree on it again. And now we're back into the world of like, oh my golly, uh, how big is this dictionary? <laughs> and my right. little embedded system is now scuppered going... Oh, I need to store, you know, a 50 megabyte table of this this dictionary that we've agreed upon and all the prefixes to go with it. So that's a right, shame. Right. And if you do transmit it, you have to transmit it after you've examined the data. Correct. Right? Which means if you're and maybe I'm wrong about this, but if you're decompressing on the other side, you can't really decompress then in a stream because you don't get the dictionary until the very end. Well, Usually, in this true? instance, uh, you'd have to get the dictionary up ahead uh, because the compressor needs the dictionary as well. If you were to do it that way, right? Because as you're going through, you can't, you if you are, at, I'm assuming that you have a static tree that you've built that is like here are mm. all the probabilities, and they therefore don't change. But obviously, we can talk about how you can actually update them, and that yeah, sort okay. of leads us naturally to the next thing, which is what if you didn't transmit the dictionary at all? Okay. Because yeah. if I've if I've just transmitted the letters c a and t because that's the first three letters of the document that i'm i'm sending mm -hmm. i have actually also just transmitted the letter the, the word cat right mm -hmm. it, it took three bytes or it took however many the relative probabilities of the c the a and the t were to to transmit uh to transmit it. but now i effectively have a dictionary record for the for the word cat it is three bytes back from where we're currently decompressing if you've mm -hmm. just written, if you're the mm -hmm. decompressor and you've just written out the C, the A, and the T because you've decoded them, so mm -hmm. what if instead of sending an explicit dictionary of things that I've previously agreed, the dictionary entries themselves are effectively references back from earlier in the document. Mm, interesting. And so now, I, anytime I want to say the word cat, I can say, oh, well, depending on where you are in the output, go back however many bytes to get to the, the, the C and copy three bytes, C and A mm -hmm. and a T. 
And so now I've effectively got a dynamic dictionary that um, allows me to refer back to anything I've previously transmitted. And so suddenly, I, if I've transmitted the word cat, I can say cat over and over and over again with just one symbol. And that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even cooler is what if I had the letter A 700 times in a row? You remember in our original mm-hmm. description, we were talking, well, you know, you have run length encoding. I could transmit something that says, hey, there's an A followed by there's a ton of them. All right. So, you know, just mm-hmm. copy that A 600 and uh, sorry, you know, there's 700 of these A's in a row. Mm-hmm. But if I say um, transmit the code, here is an A. So the decompressor mm-hmm. has written out an A. And now I say, hey, there's a dictionary element I would like you to use. It is go back one character and copy 699 times. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what I've just done is I'm, if you can visualize it, I'm reading the A immediately that I've just decompressed and I'm copying it to the current location. And then the two pointers are going to walk along. And so that A is going to get smeared out 700 times. Mm -hmm. And so this Mm -hmm. dictionary compression that we've just talked about, where I can back reference to a a previous part of the, the document, gives us RLE for free. That is run-length encoding. I can just take an A, and then I transmit the dictionary entry that says, go back one, copy 600, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I've got my run-length encoding. So the, the size of that uh, amount of data that refers to how far back in the stream you go, right? Whether it's 4 bytes, 8 bytes, 16 bytes, however big it is, am I correct in assuming that that is the amount of previous data that you need to hold in memory in order to decompress the the data as you stream through it exactly right this is referred to in uh, as a sliding window because it's the the last right. m bytes yeah. usually yeah, something yeah, like yeah, 64k yeah. that yeah. you even if you're st- a streaming decompressor and you're passing the bytes onto some other thing you know you're printing them directly to the screen whatever you're doing mm-hmm. Because of this, you still have to hang on to the 64K of prior data in RAM so that mm-hmm. when the next byte comes from the, the, the wire that says, hey, you know, copy back 32K uh, and, you know, it's 27 bytes from there, you need to be able to get access to that still. So it, obviously it does, um, and I guess this is something we didn't talk about, like the runtime memory requirements of yeah, that's the right. decompressor, right? You know, you have to keep something mm-hmm. around in order to to to... to to, to be able to decompress. Yeah, that is another consideration that we forgot to consider. <laughs> we forgot, yeah, an unconsidered consideration. <laughs> right, yeah. So anyway, we so what we've got so far is we have uh, a tree that lets us encode symbols, and symbols are not just bytes. They could be dictionary elements. And um, some of those, and those dictionary elements are actually now phrased as go back N and copy M bytes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is glossing over this the actual specifics of deflate, which actually has different trees for different things or whatever. But like, let's just stick with this for the sim- quote simplicity um, of of trying to explain it to somebody who's walking their dog at the moment or mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is right. pottering around the house on the train. Or doing, yeah. on the train. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, you mentioned a, new, a number of times, you know, having to do multiple passes and the, the dealing of, of streaming and things like that. Unfortunately, that is something that the compressor is forced to do. In order mm-hmm. to be able to make these determinations, what it's likely, and, and there, although there are algorithms for online building of the trees and whatever, um, typically what happens is that the compressor chunks its input data into sort of reasonable sizes. Mm-hmm. And then the compressor normally tries a few different types of algorithms 
uh, exactly as I described right at the beginning with the RLE, you know, like it goes, mm-hmm. hey, let's try doing it with uh, just a static tree. Let's try it with a dynamic tree. Let's try it with back references. Let's just uh, and and each time it says, you know, does this does this work out as being smaller? And it would pick mm-hmm. the one the block that is the the, the smallest um, of them all. And ultimately, there is a don't, didn't compress type block you know storing it only which only has a couple of bits at the beginning that says oh sugar i couldn't actually compress this and then here's just the literal data and so mm-hmm. that is the hedge for like the uncompressibility and it bounds the maximum uh size of the of the compressed thing to be you know only a tiny percentage bigger than the input in the worst possible case mm-hmm. so having done this it's now run through it's it, it, it sort of encodes uh the dictionary based compression it's trying and, and that is in, for what it's worth a very difficult problem right you have to kind of search through the space of like should i go back two bytes and copy one byte or should i go back further in the document mm-hmm. and carry mm-hmm. copy slightly more now going further back i might be able to get a longer match that you know because uh, maybe i've got cat and i've got ca mm-hmm. and i can build cat by going back 700 bytes and copying three bytes or i've recently done a ca i can go back a smaller distance to get just the cna copy those two and then just output a t and those Mm -hmm. are equivalent in the output stream but the exact bit patterns of how to describe those two operations of going back a long way and copying three versus going back a short distance will change the overall output compression uh, uh ratio because um Maybe the nearer ones are used more often, and so you know they're, they're, they'll have a smaller coding in the tree yeah. and that kind of okay. stuff. So it's not there isn't like a one true encoding, and that's essentially when you're you're you know gzipping something and you do gzip minus nine, you're tending to try really 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 hard and go through all sorts of different combinations and try different encodings to see if it'll work out. As well as um, there are some internal acceleration structures that are sized accordingly um, when you do that. And it's why it takes longer in the compressor because it's essentially searching through to find what might be the best um, encoding of the data. Yeah, I didn't realize that when when you're telling these algorithms to basically try harder, what they're doing is trying more internal algorithms more approaches i guess is one amongst other things that. yeah i mean yeah. So most of them end up having to do um i mean if you imagine what it looks like you're trying to find a prefix um in some data you've already sent out so you've got 64k mm-hmm. of the stuff you've previously sent and then you're looking at the next byte in the compressor and you're saying oh what is the longest match in the 64k buffer i've got behind me mm-hmm. um and the one way to do that is to just try go back all 64k and mm-hmm. look for the but that's a hugely order n squared operation you're now doing and so most things do some kind of stuff where they hash a few bytes and go well i just keep a hash table of like the prefixes of abc and i look at my hash table and kind of go oh i've not seen abc or if i have it was too far ago never mind Mm -hmm. um and and then as i say there's all these other sort of subtleties about like well maybe you want to prefer nearer matches than further matches because you're more likely to say copy three bytes ago Mm-hmm. over and over and over again rather than copy 64,922 bytes ago which is a very you know unique encoding compared to nearby right so 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 there's a whole bunch of trade-offs uh up there but anyway so you've done this a number of times and then you're you're going to tell the decompressor hey i picked to use um a dynamic tree which i'm going to transmit to you in this block and um uh, then, you know, obviously it's dictionary decompression after that. So the tree gets transmitted 
and there's a pretty compact representation for the tree in terms of which bits map to which symbols and then the 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 decompressor has to generate that tree and then obviously look through um and just copy from before but those those chunks we're talking about these like 64k ish blocks mm-hmm. that the compressor has chosen to like look ahead and kind of make its determination mm-hmm. those are different from the sliding window of 64k right that's a that's oh, a separate okay, those yeah. are separate separate things there right so because the compressor could just choose to look at the whole file and say actually this is th- th- this technique that i'm about to do this tree that i'm going to build is good for the whole file mm-hmm. let's send you the whole file but for pragmatic reasons of not having to go all the way to the end of the file and buffer it all in memory if you're a streaming thing, usually right. it's chunked into smaller pieces. Chunking into smaller pieces also has a nice side effect because it means that you get a chance to give a different tree every right, 32K, yeah. 64K, whatever the algorithm decides, the compressor. And so if you have a text file that's in different languages, you know, hey, the first half of this is in English and then it goes into Norwegian, maybe mm-hmm. you need a different set of, like, you know, <laughs> right. um, vowels uh, more often or whatever, diacritic marks and stuff like that. Or, you know, more generally, in your um, in your data for- file format you're compressing, there's likely to be a big header at the beginning which has some characteristic and then a whole bunch of, like, other data in the middle, which is a different thing. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. So it gives it an opportunity to kind of reset and change the um, the relative frequencies of all of the symbols that are occurring, depending mm-hmm. on you know on the data, um, which of course is another degree of freedom the compressor has. Hey, it could choose not to do that. It could do mm-hmm. the whole thing. It could try. It could it could try doing one k, then two k, then four k, then eight. It's got a lot of degrees of freedom there, which means that, you know, again, it's it can be uh, difficult to write an, an optimal or a provably optimal c- compressor. And this mm-hmm. is all deflate for what it's worth. This is all what deflate right. does. Deflate has um, dictionary base, which um, if people know what Lempel, Ziv, LZ77, um, I think recently one, uh, Ziv or oh, Lempel, one of the two died recently. There was a, yeah. uh, which was, which was said. But anyway, uh, Lempel, Ziv is like all this dictionary based thing where you have like these back references to N bytes ago, copy M. And there are a mm-hmm. hundred different ways of encoding it or choosing to, to, to do it. And there's all the different LZ77s and other uh numbers i can't remember what the other one is now that was a four- mm, no it's gone uh then obviously the the um the tree uh the tr- the tree is called a huffman tree and it's a huffman encoding tree it's a, a way of building these unambiguous um sequences of bit patterns that will encode a node in a tree mm-hmm. uh, and the length of that sequence is provably the shortest unique sequence that will get you to that particular point in the tree based on its relative um uh, occurrence how, how often it occurs so that's pretty cool um and deflate is built, built of those two primitives um mm-hmm. in various like you know clever bit packing encoding and other bits and bit, bits and pieces so the devil is in the detail with a lot of these things but there are some really other left field ways of of compressing data i mean okay. you mentioned lossy yeah right so obviously you could decide to just you know I don't know divide everything by two and and then uh, <laughs> uh, and then uh, that immediately you've, you've you've saved one bit for every <laughs> every right. output value and then you just multiply it by two on the way out and maybe yep. some va- values you know everything's even but who cares right for some mm-hmm. data that might work so but um, sort of more wacky uh, and I still really haven't got my head around how this works and also I can't possibly begin to explain this a because I'm not very good at understanding myself. But B, because we probably need a picture. There is, <laughs> right. But there exists a transformation to your data called the Burroughs-Wheeler transform. Okay. It is a reversible 
transform. That is, I can apply the BWT to my data and I get a permutation of all the bytes of my data and I can reverse it and get my original data back, right? This has not changed in any meaningful way the contents of the data. It's just rearranged it. Okay, okay. But the the side effect of the Burroughs-Wheeler transform is that it is sort of sorted your data. Your data is more sorted, it's more ordered than because of the before. transform than it was before. Interesting. Right? Yeah. It is interesting. You know, you take a megabyte of data, you apply the BWT to it, and it's a permutation of it. And the data, if you looked at it, was more likely to be A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 D, 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 E, E, A, A, A. And it might go back to A again. It's not, you know, it can't, it's not just sorting it. Yeah. And and again, there's a great Wikipedia article on the BWT, and it's got a picture, and you can see what it's doing. And like the, the way of, of reversing it is more tricky than you might think, but it, it can be done, right? Yeah, so okay. if you apply the BWT before you throw it into a compressor, right. what you've done yeah. is you've made it more compressible. Right. Which right. is cool. Yes. And that's yes. what, um, oh, which one is it? Tar dot, not XZ. What's, no, because that's another one. One of the um, uh, uh, BZ2, uh, yeah, the B- BZ2, um, uh, extension bz2 mm-hmm. uh for like title bzt2 is is borrows wheeler i think the b inside that for oh, okay. of bzip um so it applies it before it, it 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 runs it into the the compressor and actually while we're talking about that there's another general sort of technique for compression which is to apply a domain specific filter to your data before you throw it into a compressor mm-hmm. so for example you might know that there are certain sequences in uh say arm assembly code or arm machine code i should say mm-hmm. that are very common but they are relative to their or rather their absolute locations right they are absolute locations in the file or relative so mm-hmm. no no they're relative sorry let me get it straight they are relative so you can imagine there's a ju- a, a branch instruction and it has a relative destination okay. um and so but if you're if if every branch if, if every third branch is calling the same absolute destination their mm. encoding will be different because relative to where that branch is it's a different mm-hmm, offset mm-hmm. right which means right. it's you know unique but if you were to extract that out and say okay well these are all going to the same location i'm going to make them absolute right yeah then now suddenly better. it's the same bits every time every yeah. time we see that branch or whatever or something like that i've just butchered it obviously mm-hmm. um but um yeah so there are certain things where if you know ahead of time that you can make the data more compressible in a reversible way BWT right. being like a more generalized way of doing it, um, right, then right, right. that's a that's that's another uh, a technique. But obviously, the decompressor has to know how to undo that too, and it has to know that that process has happened. And very often, those are incredibly application specific. Yeah, interesting. So it's like you're you're intentionally introducing duplication in your data in a re, uh, reversible way because it makes the compression's algorithm's job much easier. Right. Uh, and you know, I've never actually done the experiment before of just taking a, a t- like a bunch of random text, sorting it, and then compressing it, and, <laughs> right? And compressing it and seeing what the difference is. That I, yeah, it would be really. Interesting I mean, it's a measure. Try. I mean, uh, generally speaking, is the measure of uh, of how much disorder in the file is the entropy, and you know that gives mm-hmm. you some kind of lower bound on how much you can compress a file. So obviously, if you took a completely random file. You know, mm-hmm. if you catted dev random right. and you compressed it, you'd imagine it shouldn't compress at all. It should be slightly bigger. But obviously, right. if you sorted it 
what you're likely to have is as equal number of zeros, ones, twos, threes, fours, yeah, fives, six, yeah, all the way yeah. up to 255. It would compress really well. And you'd imagine it would compress down to almost nothing because it'd be like, yeah, there's 250 million zeros, there's 250 million ones, there's 250, and so on. And you're like, all right. So in the limiting case, you can get a, a really wow. good ratio. But obviously it's not reversible. Right, 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 right. But if right. you can come up with a way of encoding how to make put the zeros back in the right place in the mm-hmm. final document, then mm-hmm. you're sort of edging towards a compression algorithm. But the amount of data it would take to encode the positions of all the zeros, for example, mm-hmm. and then all the positions mm-hmm. of all the ones, should be the same amount of data as you put in in the first place. So, you, you know, there's no free lunch there, but it might be better to encode or it might be easier to encode, which is like essentially what the, the BWT is, is doing. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. Sure, I'm sure I've butchered some description of it there and we'll get people tweeting at us uh, or masterning this um, for those things. But mm-hmm. one thing yeah. I did want to say, actually, just while, while I'm here, and because I've got the page open in the background now, I've been thinking about it, is that, that sometimes um, the the trade-off you want to make in the compressor is, uh, you know, like imagine you're Google and you want to send out the Google, uh, you know, there's a single Google.png or Google.whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. like literally every third web transfer will be of this in, in the whole world is right, of google.png yes. right you know right. so you know yes. every byte you can save on that damn png is worth its weight in gold right it, it right. i don't know how much a byte weighs but you know whatever um, yes given that png internally is using deflate which is another another thing it might be worth saying i don't care about if it takes me 6 days Mm-hmm. to compress this PNG, if it saves me one byte, that'll pay for itself over the course of probably right. a, a day. Millions and millions and millions of page loads, yeah. Exactly. And so there are some um, compression libraries that are dedicated to generating almost perfect bit streams of like, mm-hmm. this is the smallest conceivable um, sequence of valid deflate bits that will cause the output to be what you want it to be and one of those mm-hmm. is something called zopfli z-o-p-f-l-i it hasn't been touched in years um but it is a way of creating um uh and compressing a, 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 um, a, a source document and generating essentially the optimal output and it takes hours <laughs> Interesting. a really long time and it's very limited you can't do very much with it um the only reason i know about it is because of um, hobby projects that use this to compress stuff on a PC to be then put onto a an eight bit computer, where again that trade off's fine. You know, like the, the source data is small; it's you know twenty k, mm-hmm. but you want to compress it as much as actually possible for your you know your eight k demo you're trying to get working, or your four k demo mm-hmm. you're trying to get working mm-hmm. on your your sixty five hundred two based machine. And so it's it's worth saying, well, I'll spend thirty minutes in my build squishing yeah. it those two more bytes because I can do something cool with it. Or again, be worth yeah, it. that's neat. And I think the way that they work is actually they start backwards. They start at the end of the file and oh. work backwards, and they try and like find the optimal thing that would encode what remains. Something like that. Somebody explained it to me once uh, over a pint, and uh, it made perfect sense at the time. And like so <laughs> as, many of those things, as I say it out yes. loud now, I'm like, how how could that work? How how did that work? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I think you're definitely right about not being able to get to things like lossy compression in this episode because uh it seems like this is a a very deep topic which maybe warrants some follow-ups right uh so i'm going to just do honorable mentions now we've talked about deflate all the way through um Mm -hmm. google and facebook have both got their own like uh 
versions uh, of again i think they're all using the same techniques and slicing and dicing there's the same tricks but with different trade-offs but z standard which is now like the seemingly the most de facto compression at least in our company uh Mm -hmm. z standard is 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 coming uh, and snappy they're both libraries again that 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 are not deflate but they are they use broadly the same um parts but yeah honorable mentions for those only because you know we've talked about gzip which is you know ancient really Right, uh, right, and they, you know, those things, the snappy and Z standard are usually faster and have comparable, if not slightly better, compression ratios mm-hmm. too. So, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, one last thing, there was there somebody posted a, um, uh, so we talked about PNG just then, which is you know very complicated file format, and ultimately the internals of it are in fact deflate compressed and whatever. Um, some random uh, coder just came up with their own image file format using a relatively made up off the fly like well one bit and then it's like this is how we encode the next pixel two bits and this is how we encode it in the next pixel whatever and um it beats png hands down for the lossless <laughs> so there is still work room in the world for compression formats that are incredibly bespoke so this is just for image data but still though i it's, mean yeah. there's a lot of image data in the world that's exactly I, I wish yeah. i could remember it and again i'm sure we'll put something in the notes that says what it really is <laughs> mm-hmm. right but exactly. yeah, as you can tell, I love this stuff. Um, if I remember rightly, I've got somewhere I've got like a, a an online view where you can type in words and see how the um, a dictionary compressor would see it and how a Huffman tree oh, would see it. Well, we're so definitely going to have to put that. We'll in the link notes. that in the notes yeah. uh, too, so that you can have a little play around and kind of give a m- m- more of a visceral understanding about what's going on behind this. But um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's fun. Yeah, that's really cool. Really cool. All right. Uh, maybe part one of two. I don't maybe? know. Maybe who knows? Make that. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll if see it how it goes. Like that. All right, man. Well, I'll All talk right. to you later. Until next time, my friend. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbolt. Find the show transcript and notes at www.twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Mastodon. We are at twoscompliment at hackyderm.io. Our theme music is by Inverse Phase. Find out more at inversephase.com.